So you're sitting there listening to this podcast, listening to the stories of other doctors who found freedom through direct primary care, and you're sitting there wondering whether or not it's something that could be for you, wondering how you could start your own DPC practice. Are you ready to take control of your practice? Are you ready to provide the personalized care your patients deserve? The DPC Summit is your gateway to success in direct primary care. Join us for an immersive experience designed to empower you with tools, knowledge, and community support needed to launch and thrive your own direct primary care practice. Discover the freedom to practice medicine on your own terms without the constraints of insurance companies dictating patient care. Visit dpcsummit.org to secure your spot today. We'll see you there. Direct primary care is an innovative alternative path to insurance-driven health care. Typically, patients pay their doctor a low monthly membership and, in return, build a lasting relationship with their doctor and have their doctor available at their fingertips. Direct patient care means to me that you can make the best possible clinical decisions for your client, for your patient, without your experience and your clinical expertise, making those decisions instead, right? So I think that it, it means providing the best possible care and directly to, to your patient and to your client. Just in terms of Pride Month, it's like interesting, right? To um, I think oftentimes... LGBTQI plus health is highlighted during Pride Month, but you know we exist all throughout the year, <laughs> right? And uh, so I was making that joke with somebody recently. Definitely, I think it's a it's an opportunity to celebrate. I think oftentimes there's a lot of hardships and challenges and heartache that happen, but you know I think there there's a time to celebrate and and have pride in who you are um but i also think it's important that we recognize how pride came to be which that started as a riot um and it started as um as fighting back against oppression and that systemic oppression continues to this day and so it's like it's a continued journey so i see it as like yes there's cel- those there's celebrations and there's also a recognition of the continued systemic oppression that happens in all systems um in our society and so i think that as a direct primary care doctor like it's important that you recognize the systemic oppression that exists right so that um someone's health is going to be impacted by you know whether they can get housing whether they can get employment you know whether they can access gender affirming care that's a huge i mean research really shows that the health and well-being of the person increases dramatically when they have access to gender affirming care um and transition related care so i think that being really aware of that and knowing what that means. Like it has a direct impact on all aspects of their health, mental health and physical health and well-being. And know, knowing the challenges that come with the marginalization that, you know, has happened for folks within the community. So being aware of all of that and then doing your best to provide affirming care means that you're going to be having such a huge impact on their health and well-being um, and it's needed. So I, I really hope that more of you out there will be interested in, you know, shifting practices to, to make care accessible to folks. I'm Mel Browning of Mel Browning Therapy, and this is my DPC story.
Mel Browning is a licensed marriage and family therapist and earned his master's in counseling psychology from Dominican University of California. Mel has a private practice providing psychotherapy for a range of issues such as anxiety, depression, life transitions, and relationships with a focus on attachment and trauma. Mel is trained in EMDR and other somatic approaches to trauma-informed therapy and has specific training and experience in providing LGBTQIA and transgender diverse affirming care. Mel is a queer gender nonconforming trans man and has a passion for social justice and trauma-informed work, believing both are key to forming and maintaining healthy communities that thrive. Mel has experienced training hundreds of volunteers, mental health and medical professionals, law enforcement and student leaders on a range of issues and populations such as trauma-informed crisis response, LGBTQIA plus populations, and working with gender diverse individuals with an emphasis on improving and providing affirming care. Welcome to the podcast, Mel. Thanks for having me. This is wonderful. So just for the listeners to know, I've known Mel for over 20 years. I think we calculated 25 before recording. And it's just incredible. One, to think about that I've known someone for that long. And two, that it's been that number of years. So it is it is such an honor to have you kick off our month of pride at my DPC story. And as you heard in Mel's credentials and bio, he is an LMFT who does accept cash pay for patients. And so knowing that, he absolutely understands the pressures when it comes to insurance versus non-insurance driven care. And also he is a queer gender non-conforming trans male. And so he appreciates affirming care from a very different perspective than somebody who is not necessarily part of the LGBTQ community, nor providing care yet to the LGBTQ community um, as a clinician. So Mel, I'm going to toss the mic over to you. And if you can share about your practice specifically, and we'll go from there. Right. Thank you for having me. So I am the practice owner of Mel Browning Therapy, and that's a private practice in Petaluma, California, and that's in Sonoma County um, in California. And I, my focus is on a couple of things. So I focus on trauma. Um, so working with folks that have experienced trauma, which so many folks have, um, as well as, you know, depression, anxiety, life transitions, relationship, parenting issues. So, um, kind of a whole host of things, but another area of focus is, uh, gender diverse folks and providing, um, gender affirming care as well as, uh, affirming care to anyone in the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, so that's a, a huge area of focus for me. Now, in your practice, uh-huh. you do accept one insurance and you also accept cash pay. And so for folks who are DPC physicians or direct specialty physicians, this is always something that is very interesting because especially now that we're having more specialists join the direct patient care movement, how do you work with both an insurance as well as cash pay patients? And what are the challenges with both for you? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think it's something that that a lot of therapists struggle with in terms of whether I'm going to accept insurance or not. And if I am like how many, you know, insurance companies and um, I've really limited 
that just because of some of the issues with, you know, the low pay um, and the amount of time that you're spending and whether or not that's going to be sustainable for a practice. And, you know, if I can't sustain my practice, I can't provide care for, you know, my clients. So that's been something that I've considered. And then just in terms of the amount of pressures from insurance of like, you know, what type of care I can provide and what type of care they cover um, and what they don't cover and trying to dictate care. You know, that's, that's all things that I think a lot of therapists struggle with. Um, And for me, uh, making the decision to not accept all kind of all insurance under the sun and, but also trying to make some things accessible for folks. So I think it's a, it's a back and forth kind of decision-making process for a lot of therapists, but for folks that wonder why therapists don't accept a lot of insurances, it's oftentimes because of the experiences that we've had with insurance in terms of providing care and also trying to um, make our practice sustainable. So I think oftentimes that that's part of the issue. And then just in terms of a lot of things not being covered by the insurance, but a client actually needs that. Um, that's what they're coming in for. That's what that's the care that they need. So um, providing an opportunity for folks to be able to to access the care that they need. When you talk about access to care, it's quite you know it's it's quite a good thing for some people who are able to pay cash for services. I mean, we've seen online services like BetterHelp and Talkspace regain those platforms find a lot more traffic because of one limiting care in person, but two, because people can pay out of their pocket for care and they're not relying on their insurance to be able to access care for mental health. So that said, with regards to COVID, how has your practice changed because of the pandemic? Yeah, um, well, it all went to telehealth. So you know, I still maintain an office and we'll probably be adding uh, more in person in the future. Um, it's it's hard knowing with the pandemic like where things are headed, but hoping that in-person will come back. I know that, that some therapists have been doing in-person with you know a lot of protections and things like that. And for me, just the risk still didn't make sense um, if it was possible to provide care for folks. Um, via telehealth. So yeah, changing that, that's that's been actually, in some ways, I think it's been really beneficial because folks that sometimes would make it, it would be really hard for them to seek care in person and make that step. They're like, oh, I can actually be in my home, <laughs> in the comfort of my home and actually attend appointments. So I think that in some ways it's been really beneficial for folks accessing care to be able to make it more like they don't have to have a car. Like they don't have to, you know, so it's like, yes, they need to have um, some type of like phone connection or Wi-Fi um, and find uh, a way to do that. And usually have some type of electronic device, but oftentimes folks do have that or they have access to utilize someone's to do that. And so I find that in some ways it's been easier for some folks to finally actually reach out and connect with care. But it also has been a great challenge because folks are really struggling with mental health because of the pandemic on top of other things that everyone's dealing with right now. But that has been a collective trauma that's been ongoing and chronic for a long period of time. And that has a big impact on people's mental health. So um, so seeing that in folks as well is, yeah, it's, a, it's an extra challenge to have a global pandemic happening on top of other mental health concerns. With regards to telemedicine as the way that you are able to deliver care for clients, can you touch on the effectiveness of telehealth versus in-person visits and where the differences lie or if there are any differences in terms of quality of care 
yeah. between the two between the two modes. Yeah. Well, I mean, the research has actually been pretty clear that it's been it's as effective as in-person care. I know that a lot of folks have a lot of different opinions, and I do think that certain things can be more beneficial in person, right? So if someone's feeling really isolated, being in person can provide a lot. If it's um, a child, you know, that play therapy is going to be a lot of the work. Um, again, there's ways to do that with telehealth, but it but it might not be quite the same as in person. So there's certain things that I think can be challenging with tele, uh, telehealth, but on the whole, research shows that it's as effective. And I've, I've actually found that to be the case. I was a kind of skeptical, um, even though I knew that what the research was, because I do um, EMDR, which is a trauma-focused um, therapy. And I was like, there's no way I can translate this to, because I had not done that. I hadn't done it before. Um, and it's actually been really effective for folks. So that's been a, a learning thing for me during this process. So, yeah. And I appreciate you sharing that because I think that Yes, for physicians, but also for patients, this idea of like, oh, you know, it's not, it's not the same as visiting the doctor. And then when we throw in examples of, you know, you don't necessarily need to come into the doctor to talk about your lab results. It's very different when a patient comes in for a physical finding versus going over lab results on a piece of paper. So I, I feel that using in-person visits to support telehealth is so important and where telehealth can be used, it's quite effective. And I am glad that, you know, you shared what you did. And I know just from my patient's experience with telehealth before I went on maternity leave, they had not really thought about how effective it could be. And I'm glad that in direct primary care, especially telehealth is not something that is deemed approved or not. If if insurance is not taken, insurance can't tell us what to do. And so, yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah. There's a lot of challenges right now in terms of trying to get parity for telehealth insurance and in different states. And I mean, there's just, yeah, there's a lot going on there, but yeah, I mean, I've had some folks that were kind of, they were like, oh, well, I'm going to do this right now because that's the only thing available, but I really want to go back to in-person when you have that available. And now they're telling me, they're like, actually, I really want to keep it. Um, I, you know, they've, I've been asking to make sure that I'm going to continue offering telehealth because for them not having to drive and make that, you know, because with traffic, sometimes it's, you know, it's a good chunk of time that folks like don't have to worry about. And they're like, this is, this, this has been working for me really well. So, you know, I do have some folks that want in-person when that's available. But on the whole, a lot of folks are like, actually, I'm probably going to continue with telehealth after this. So, yeah, it's it's been, you know, so something that, um, you know, is sometimes a challenge is if folks don't have the privacy aspect. And, you know, for the LGBTQI plus community, when I've been dealing with folks that have moved back home, like if they're college age, you know, student, you know, students that have been move, moving home maybe they're not out, you know, at home, or maybe it's not an affirming environment. That's been an extra challenge with, I think the pandemic, but, um, but on the whole, still having access to care, even if they've, you know, had to move back home or they, you know, or they can't travel, being able to still access therapy has been really important. If somebody is struggling with a challenge specifically, like if they're not, if they have not come out yet to those around them, how have you seen creative ways to overcome that challenge? in your clients. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Lauren Hetty, and I practice at Direct Doctors in East Greenwich, Rhode Island. And I just wanted to do a shout out for Mother's Day to all those mom docs who are out there and are thinking that maybe they might be wanting to think about something new, like practicing direct primary care. I would say as a mom of three, 10 years into this, it's the best decision I've ever made. And you can definitely do it too. You know, I mean, I think it depends. I think sometimes there there are really valid reasons that folks are not out, right? Because it's either not safe or, you know, they like they, they're going through a lot and that's not the time for them to try to come out to non-affirming, you know, family members. And so um, getting, I think in those instances, just my, my push is to connect with folks that are affirming because, you know, the research is clear that when folks are in a non-affirming environment, the risk of suicide um, and other mental health concerns increase dramatically. Um, So getting them connected to community is really important. Whatever that looks like, that's a Zoom social hangout with the local LGBTQ organization. Great. If if that's um, therapy with an individual therapist, if that's connecting with other folks in any type of queer group or, um, you know, trans or gender diverse groups, that's going to be a benefit to their mental health, especially if they're not surrounded by an affirming home environment. So uh, it's like connecting folks, um, which has been really great to see the local organizations pivot to providing online, um, which is to say, again, there's going to be a benefit to in-person, right? But if that's not available, the different creative ways that you can get connected to community has been really important. When you mention affirming care, I want to, especially because we're starting off the month of pride at my DPC story, I want to talk about definitions of particular LGBTQI plus terms, as well as when they are considered affirming versus non-affirming usage of those terms? Usually, um, again, like I think something to really um, have in mind in terms of affirming and non-affirming care is like not assuming, like you're going to actually be able to get a long way by just not assuming what things mean. Um, And so you know, the word lesbian or the term lesbian is going to possibly be different depending on the person. But folks usually use lesbian to describe someone who is a woman and who's also attracted to a woman or someone that's fem- feminine. So um, and so or same same sex. Right. F- folks will sometimes say that as well or same gender. Um gay usually again like again it's been utilized in a lot of different ways right so but usually means um a man who's attracted to the same gender right so another man um or male um so and then bisexual again that's been um it depends on who you talk to some folks it means that you're attracted to both men and women other folks and and some folks argue that that's very binary other folks argue that you can identify as, and I use identify, right? Um, you can say that you are bisexual, and that does not mean that you um, are saying that you just are attracted to a binary. So that could be you're attracted to your gender, folks of your gender, same gender, and folks that are of not your same gender, and it could be like others, right? So pansexual usually means all kind of all genders. And so again, like folks 
can have a lot of different terms and what that means to them and within that, right? Like, so I think that just knowing that the, the way that folks use a label can can depend on the person and the definition can, can be slightly different depending on the person. So really it's like who that individual is and what does that mean to them? Right. And, 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 um, the terms that they use in terms of queer, that is a word that I love. I love queering things up. Um, and I, I consider that things that like don't fit inside like certain boxes, like I kind of consider as queer and that's, that's my view of it, but you know, it has a history of being used as a slur, you know, against the gay community. So, you know, I'm not going to necessarily use that word if the person that, you know, the patient or the client that I am working with is not using that term. So, you know, if that person doesn't use queer, I'm not going to use queer for them. I use queer for myself. I love the word queer. I think that it's really all and kind of inclusive and um, and open to all of the ways that I don't fit into a lot of the <laughs> you know notions of of what people think like a certain box or label is. So it works well for me in terms of you know two that folks oftentimes don't know what they mean. So cisgender and transgender. So cisgender. That is not a derogatory term. You know, some people think that it is. It's like, well, no, it's just that we have transgender. So we're like, okay, well, what's, it's not just like you're normal and then you're trans, like, right. It's like, we wanted to like have words that describe people who are trans and folks that are not, not not trans. So it's like that, that there is a word for it. So, and it's uh, cisgender. So cisgender just means that the um, gender you were assigned at birth, you identify as that gender right? It matches. Um, and that's a huge part of the population is cisgender. So transgender, the definition that is often used, there is a little caveat that I put with it. So, so transgender usually means that someone was assigned a gender at birth and they do not, um, that's not the gender that, that they have. So they, so let's say they, they were assigned female at birth and now they are clear that that's not their gender and their gender actually is male or non-binary or gender fluid or other. What's important to note is that folks that are born intersex, right? So they're oftentimes put in a category also, and they might not identify with the category that they're put in, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're transgender. So um, that's sometimes a little confusing for folks, but I think it's it's important to say that um, because there are, I think sometimes a lot of folks uh, that are intersex are lumped into the trans community and they're like, wait, like those are actually two separate things. <laughs> um, and I might also identify like, as trans, right? But that's, you know, I might be trans, but that's different, um, you know, so then intersex. So, and then in terms of um, other terms, right, there's just, all, there's all sorts of gender identities. Um, so folks uh, can be ad- identify as uh, a gender or gender fluid or bi-gender, right? So there, there's a lot or non-binary and to be queer non-binary means like it's not male or female, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that it's like right in the middle. It's not like, oh, there's a spectrum and like on one side is female and the other side is male and I'm in the middle. That's not what non-binary is, right? Um, so 
it's not like, oh, that means that you're androgynous for some people, but it's its own separate gender identity. So I think that that sometimes gets confusing for folks because we like to put people on like in little boxes and we like to put them on a spectrum and on in terms of a binary. And, you know, that's not exactly how humans exist. Um, you know, so it's important to really know those terms and two in terms of like what uh, it means in terms of non-binary folks, trans folks, cisgender folks. Um, and that's just kind of a, that's, those are a few, right. That's not a whole long exhaustive list of terms to be aware of. Um, there's a lot of great educational sites, you know, um, to, you know, PFLAG is a great resource as well in terms of um, definitions, but a lot of uh, LGBTQ organizations will have like definitions on their website. And then in terms of gender nonconforming, so I consider myself a gender nonconforming trans man. I say that because I don't conform to the ideas of like what it, what society says, like a man is supposed to be, or, you know, how a male is supposed to present. One simple example is I like to wear eyeliner. I think guys look cool wearing eyeliner. And I think all guys should be able to wear eyeliner without an issue, but that doesn't mean that I'm not a dude, right? So non-conforming in my, in the way I view it, right. Is just that, that I don't conform to a lot of the ways that society like dictates that particular gender should act or present or go about the world as, um, in terms of, how we conceptualize gender identity, like something to think about is a lot of times I'll hear folks say, oh, well, they were born as a man and now they're a girl. And like that is really non-affirming way of describing um, someone's experience. So in terms of what is often said, and again, this is always evolving, but it's often said someone was assigned a gender at birth, right? And then they, this is their gender identity. So let's say I was assigned female birth. That's me. And now my gender identity is male or trans male. So um, someone might be assigned male birth and they, their gender identity is non-binary or female or gender fluid and so on and so forth. So to, to be clear, the reason why that's important is that we're not saying that person was something else and then they changed into something else. It's like they were born um, who they are and they are presenting their authentic selves now, but they were assigned something else at birth, right? You know, it's like folks looked at them when you shall be this and, you know, stamped it on a form, right? So, and this is just being clear that that's not the case, right? That folks um, are born who they are and then they authentically are now presenting who they are to the world. I think that's so important. And I appreciate you sharing that foundation for us to build on as we hear the next three guests this month, because I feel that my education in medical school, as well as residency was next to zero when it comes to being a person practicing affirming care. So I think that is also really important that is also really important for the listeners to hear because they're going to be hearing those terms used in the next 3 weeks as well. Now, my next question to you is what does your intake form look like when you have a new client addressing affirming care? 
well, it's different now that it's like all online. Um, so some of it, which, which is like an ongoing issue is some of it is dictated and non-changeable from the electronic health record system that you're using. Um, and there's a lot of us that are pushing for certain ones to change, to be more affirming. And then also sometimes because someone might be, you know, submitting it to their insurance afterwards for out of network reimbursement or things like that. Like it like has to have a legal name on it that might be different or like certain things, um, need to be on there, um, which is really difficult for folks because they're, you know, needing to fill out things and put things in there that like can really bring up a lot of stuff for folks. So it's challenging, but, um, What's important for me is that folks are able to put um, their gender identity, their pronouns and things like that, um, and the the name that they use, and that's things that they can enter into the intake um, and system. So for me, you know, that's part of affirming care is like the forms you use. Like what, how are, how was it stated? You know, and I, I don't know how many times I've been in like an office that you have to like check male or female, or you have to like, or there's no place to put pronouns, you know, and I know that they're going to just start misgendering me. And, um, and so sometimes I've like written it at the top, you know, like, just, and, you know, sometimes that helps, sometimes it doesn't, but some of the things that folks can consider when, when they're trying to make their practice more affirming is like, do you have a place to list pronouns? Are you asking what folks pronouns are the name that they go by? Um, right. Versus, versus whatever else other name that, that you need to have, you know, what are your forms, um, have in terms of, you know, I think a lot of times I'm handed a form that says like, when was your last menstrual period? Right. And I'm like, so if in my chart, it says that I am a trans man and I've had a hysterectomy, why do I have to be considered, you know, constantly asked (laughs) that question? Right. So I think certain things like that can improve, um, the, the patient experience and can improve their ability to trust you, to feel comfortable. And therefore the more that they're comfortable, the more that they trust you, the more they're going to share, you know, kind of important information that you need to know as their, as their doctor. Right. And, um, the more willing that they're able to actually follow up with care, you know, and, um, because I'm not the only trans person that has put off going into the doctor because I don't want to have to deal with some of the things that I've dealt with. So, um, you know, and that impacts people who are, you know, if they have a chronic health issue that needs managing, right. Um, it's like that has a direct impact on their overall health if they're putting off care because they don't want to experience care or be, I mean, there's plenty of folks that are denied care. You know, I've been denied care. Right. So it's like, it, it happens. And, um, so yes, there's like kind of like horror stories about people being denied care. And then there, and then there's just like non-affirming care that's, that's going to be subpar care. And then there's, how can we be affirming and really provide great care to folks that are coming in to see you and really, really need folks to be affirming of, of who they are in all the different ways that you can whether that's the bathrooms that you have at your facility, whether it's the forms that you use, whether it's whether you're you're misgendering me or using you know my name or not, um, those are all going to be things that that play into my experience um, as a patient. I, I just I really appreciate you also sharing that you know your experience, but also the concern for every human being has 
healthcare needs at some point that they need to talk with a physician about. And it's just heartbreaking because I've said this before, but I truly believe that anybody who is a human being deserves the best medicine possible. And in a model like direct primary care, where you have the time to develop relationship-based medicine based on that relationship and not based on the clock running or the insurance codes, you mention excellent examples of how a physician can practice in a more affirming way with regards to forms, with regards to facilities. One of the questions that I have is around the idea that a doctor might be taking care of a person before and after a transition. Is that, is that the correct terminology? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, it's, it's something that comes up definitely absolutely for, for, for doctors that, um, some of the questions that doctors are going to ask are really appropriate, you know, as opposed to maybe some other providers asking questions that like really don't need to be asked. Right. Cause it's like, it's more about curiosity and less about what I absolutely need to know to provide appropriate care. So I think that, uh, but just knowing that some of those questions can be upsetting for folks and, and bring up a lot of stuff. It's not, not just super easy sometimes to talk about those issues. So I think being really aware of that. Um, and then in terms of transition, being really aware of the fact that lots of trans folks, part of their journey is not, medical transition, right? So some folks, you know, assume that, okay, well you go, you know, this is, these are your pronouns. I'm going to assume that you're going to go through this process. Um, that is part of that problematic assuming that happens. So, um, and that transmedicalism that happens, um, in terms of just assuming that like to be, to recognize you for who you are, it means that you have to follow this specific quote unquote transition. Um, and that transition is a one time thing. Um, so for me, I consider transition can mean lots of things to different people and it can be a lifeline journey. Um, and it doesn't go in a specific order. So that's why sometimes it is, yeah, it is challenging. Um, I think you, there are ways to ask certain questions in ways that are gender neutral language or being really specific to the, to the body part, but it's not in connection to gender, you know, so instead of saying, well, women need to have pap exams, you know, like you can say, you know, like we provide services to individuals with ovaries and uteruses and, you know, um, vaginas, you know, like there, there are things to, you know, to, you know, other, um, affirming language can be like inward facing genitals versus out, outward facing genitals, right. There's a lot of, um, uh, I think, ways that folks can make their materials um, and their forms and their questions less problematic and more affirming. Um, and so um, one of the, some of the things that I would suggest is like gender spectrum as an organization, Fenway health or Fenway Institute is another, um, and then world um, professional association for transgender health or WPATH um, are just a few out there that folks can start to get training and information about um, standards of care for gender diverse folks and ways to conceptualize care, ways to approach care. You know, folks can ask like, so if I'm going to the doctor and this doctor has in my chart that I've had a hysterectomy, then like, 
making sure that you're not asking me like when my last menstrual period is, you know, if I've come to you over time, I'm not like a brand new person. Um, but you can also just ask like, which of these, do, you know, do you, do you need care with? Like, I mean, there's just ways to do it that, um, take into consideration that, you know, there are men that have periods and there are women that don't. And, you know, so like the, there, I think that just there's a lot that um, needs to be done in terms of improving, yeah, improving affirming care for folks. Long-winded, yes. <laughs> when I hear you sharing what you did and what you have, I just, I feel that if a direct primary care physician is looking to be more affirming and they know that they have the time to do that and they've already built a relationship with someone or they expect to build a relationship with someone, I think that's that's wonderful to know that, you know, to, to keep in mind that that journey is not like you just pointed out, like it's not a transition that happens, you know, over six months, this transition, it can happen even for a person's life. And, and I think that it's wonderful that direct primary care allows this, those advantages to provide affirming care for a patient over the long term versus piecemeal, piecemeal visits. And I wonder, you know, when, when we were preparing for our interview, I definitely am no expert when it comes to using gender affirming language. And so I reached out to you. I asked, what are affirming questions? Because I value you so much. I've known you for so long that I want to honor you as a person. And I want to use as affirming care as I can, as affirming terms as I can. And so I just want to highlight also that, especially if you have a relationship or you're clearly wanting to be affirming with patients, I love that just like you and I did, you can open that dialogue with your patient and say, hey, I'm really trying to do the best by you that I can to be affirming. One thing that comes to mind is starting out very general. And then, you know, there are the typical forms. And if you have a form on your website, because you need to know who's going to come in your door, having something that is very general and then open that discussion with the time that you have at their first visit to paint a foundation of this is an affirming practice. I am an affirming doctor. Let's talk about what language you like to use, what language you don't like to use. Because like in your example, how you embrace the word queer and some people can consider that derogatory. I, I just feel it is very sterile if you have you know, a list of terms and you check box off what you identify with. It's very different than if you have that dialogue with a patient as a discussion. So, um, so I, I really... I, I love what you've said and what you've shared. And I think it's really eye-opening to reevaluate how we as doctors are practicing and how to effectively build more affirming care into our practices. No, I, I mean, I think that that's great. And I know that, you know, when we're seeing a lot of different folks, right, not necessarily always going to keep in mind, but if we have that noted, right, in the chart and we look at that before we see the person, right. That can kind of jog our memory. Um, and I still sometimes need to, you know, need to do that. I'm like, okay, well, that remembering this person's pronouns, remembering really taking a look though, at the way that you get information, health information from people. And is there a way to ask that in a gender neutral way? Uh, is there a way to ask it, um, you know, only when necessary, um, you know, and what, and in what ways is it, is it being tied to gender or not? Right. So like women's health, 
like I constantly be like, oh, are you, you know, are you coming in for a woman's health issue, right? And it's like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, it's like, I know what they mean by that, but it's like, you know, again, like we now know, like plenty of, you know, uh, men need an OBGYN, right? Like, just like, that's, that's the thing. So, um, and we'll travel for an affirming person, you know, they they keep on asking me, you know, my healthcare system wants to ask if I want to change because it's a further away person, but I found this person and they're great. And I'm not changing because of my other horrible experiences. So I will drive. I will drive a, a distance to see um, my OBGYN. So, you know, and in terms of non-affirming care, just to, to put that out there, again, it can really be varying. But we're talking about a primary care doctor getting upset with me because I was just happening to mention I was going to be getting top surgery. Um, you know, so that would be like chest masculinization surgery, but I was there for other things, right? So actual health related things that were not related to my gender. And instead of talking about those issues, I kept in mind like, Hey, let's talk about the other, you know, physical health issues that I'm coming in for. It's like, no, 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 no. Um, very, very upset that I wanted to quote unquote, trans be, be a man when I'm married to a man. Like, why would you want to be a man if you're married to one? Couldn't get past that. And just eventually circled, um, psychiatry on a piece of paper, like handed that to me and walked out the door. Right. So, and that is in a kind of quote unquote, fairly, um, progressive area in California. Um, you know, and then I've had another primary care doctor kind of grimace, kind of in disgust because I was going to be getting some, a trans related, like, um, gender affirming surgery, um, and said, oh, okay, so you're getting a divorce then. Right. Um, was like one of, was the first question she asked. And I had mentioned nothing to do with having any issues in my relationship. Right. So that was not, I wasn't coming in in distress about my relationship or anything. I was coming in for a health issue. And so those are some of the things that kind of spill out of folks because of their discomfort, because of their lack of training, because of their own personal biases. So some of the work I think folks need to do, doctors need to do, and this systemically on lots of things. Right. So I think racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia, just like any other system and mental health included, well, that includes me. Um, you know, there are systemic issues, um, in, in care. And so doctors need to be examining their own internal biases, um, and educating themselves so that they can provide good care to folks. So important to hear, especially after the, after last year, in the year that we had and the year we had with challenges surrounding all of those ways to uh, to be affirming to others who are the same or different than you in in all of those boats right so you know we've talked about ways to provide more affirming care and earlier you had mentioned that i mean even even you yourself you, you caught yourself saying the word identify as so i want to i want to talk about that because I frequently will use somebody identifies as, and it wasn't until you had pointed out that that can definitely be non-affirming. And so I want to ask, tell us a little bit more for the listeners to hear, what does that mean if you say, what do you identify as? How can that be non-affirming? And how can one, you know, practice or, uh, 
how can one adjust if they've used that and they want to backtrack a little bit and say, oh, something different to use more affirming terminology. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Dr. Melissa Ratliff, and I'd like to wish a happy Mother's Day to all of those moms out there who, like me, have had the wonderful opportunity of having kids, but also happy Mother's Day to those who have mothered other people and to those who have been unable to mother and to those who have been mothers and lost their children. So happy Mother's Day to all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something that I catch myself still doing. And so again, like um, language is always evolving and it's evolving more towards more affirming care. So just like it used to be like, like sex reassignment surgery, and then it was gender confirmation surgery, and now it's gender affirming surgery. Again, the difference between that, it's like, I'm not changing sex is like, right. And I'm not confirming my gender, right. I, I am provide, I'm getting access to care that's affirming to the gender of who I already am. Um, so similarly, like when you say preferred pronouns, it's like, well, it's not a preference. It's just my pronouns. It's, it's who I am, you know, identifies as oftentimes folks are arguing that like, that's saying like, well, it's not really who I am, but like, I identify as that. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's that separation between like, no, this is who I am. What's hard is that I oftentimes talk about identities and labels and things like that. So I talk about marginalized identities and intersecting identities that are marginalized, right? So um, I use that term a lot. And so I think it's difficult. Um, but I think that anytime that you can just say, this is who this is who this person is, they are a, you know, I am a, I am a white, queer, trans man gender not conforming trans man. That's just who I am. That's not who I identify as, right? So I think um, removing the identify as as much as possible, but we can still talk about identities, right? Because those are like identities that we all hold. So, and I think sometimes that is hard to shift our language, but just like it's hard for for y'all, like it's hard for me. Um, And, um, you know, ableism is another thing that comes up a lot in language. And that is something that is super challenging for me too. And I continue to have to learn and check myself and um, evolve my language um, to be more affirming of folks. And if a person uses non-affirming language or something that is frankly offensive and they catch themselves or they think about it after a patient visit has has finished, what advice would you give to them to adjust their care in the future? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, um, some folks are like, oh, well, I'm just so nervous. They're going to get so upset at me. Um, you know, we can tell the difference between someone who's trying and not trying just to be really, really clear. Now I'm not speaking for all trans folks. I never can. I never will. But, you know, a lot of the folks that I've done training with and things like that, we're really clear that I can tell when you're trying and when you're not. So, you know, I've been around other, um, folks like other therapists, even like, and work with them when, um, they're never getting it right. Right. And I'm like, I don't think it's just because they just can't get it right. And oftentimes transphobic stuff comes out like really hardcore transphobic stuff. So for me, it's, it's telling if you're really never getting it right. So if someone just corrects themselves, or, you know, once they get it wrong once, but then they're using it a couple of times, like that's, that's what I ask for. Right. And that's what I think can, people can really tell what the difference is. Um, so 
What is difficult sometimes if, is if you're really exhausted and then the person makes a mistake and then they spend like 10 minutes talking about how they really try and it's, this is really hard for them and they're so sorry. That is a lot to put on the, the other person, right? So just simply correcting yourself and moving on. You know, if you really feel like it was egregious and you want to just say, sorry, it's like, you know what? Sorry about that. And then you correct yourself and you move on. Like, but you know, not talking about like, oh, now take care of me because I'm really upset that I have not been affirming to you. And now you're actually caretaking my feelings about it when I'm not providing affirming care to you. Like that's sometimes happens, you know? So, but in terms of whether or not I correct people also don't assume that just because you're not being corrected by that person, that that person's fine with it. So people are like, well, they were fine. I'm like, what were they though? You know, like, <laughs> I think that, um, there's been plenty of times that I don't correct a provider, um, or, you know, so an example, I was going to get my uh, hysterectomy and because of COVID, there was a lot of stress going on and I get, get it. Like the healthcare folks were really stressed, but there was a lot of mistakes happening. Um, and I was starting to get kind of nervous where I wasn't nervous before. Um, and when I'm nervous, I'm like, you know what? I don't want to deal with misgendering on top of being stressed out that I'm you know, about to have surgery. So I started kind of correcting people. I'm like, let's, let's do some self-advocacy now, you know, like that you ask your clients to do. And I, and I, you know, said that, and, you know, one of the folks that was going to be putting in my IV was clearly kind of annoyed now probably having a bad day. Cause it seemed like they were having a bad day. So, um, but I stopped correcting the folks around me because I was like, they're going to be putting some in my arm. They're going to be doing these other things to me. Like, I kind of don't want to piss them off any more than I already have. Um, that shouldn't be something that I have to experience. I shouldn't have to worry about the fact that I'm just, Hey, it's on my chart. And I'm also just asking, can you, can you provide, you know, affirming care in this moment? That shouldn't be something that then I'm kind of concerned to ask for, because that's going to be something that's going to be, you know, problematic. Um, because they're, they're sticking a needle in my, you know? So a lot of times I'll hear people were like, Oh, well, they were seemed great. They, like, I, I, like, I've, I've actually worked with a lot of folks and they seem like they, that, that I, that everything was really good. Um, and like, well, I mean, did, do you really know that though? You know, I think that there's plenty of times that I don't provide feedback, um, you know, when, it, but that doesn't mean that I have had a great experience with somebody. So um, that's just another like assumption not to, not to necessarily make that assumption for folks. But again, I think there's ways to just really quickly acknowledge, correct, move on. That's the best that I, that people can do. I think. When you mention like you as an individual will drive to see your ob Is there a place, because you've mentioned resources like WPATH, like PFLAG and others, but is there a place where people in the LGBTQI plus community will go to like a Yelp or something that is a collective of these, the, the, I saw this doctor today and they are amazing and this is why they're amazing. Is there something like that? That because I I'm not aware of it, but I'd love to hear yeah. if there is. Well, I mean, I think there's there's I mean, there's so many different lists. I'm not aware of all of them. Um, I think they're constantly being made and remade. Um, you know, so for instance, there's there's lists um, for folks that will provide um, an assessment and a letter 
without charging, you know, for folks to be able to access medical care that uh, for for transition related purposes. And and then there is Daylista that is like for for providers that that are um, uh, knowledgeable and affirming usually. I mean, but there's so many different lists. And oftentimes folks, you know, they're, they're using insurance or they're like, you know, not using insurance or they're in a certain location and they can't travel very far. So oftentimes it, it ends up being forums, you know, whether it's on Facebook or, you know, some other um, platform that folks are just like, we're, we were in groups and we find each other in community and then we share that information with, with each other. It's like, Hey, you know, let's say someone is, you know, I don't want to, I want to mention certain healthcare systems, but they're like, Oh, I'm in this healthcare system and I need a like trans affirming, um, you know, gynecologist, like who, who do people recommend and things like that. So, and some folks put those lists together and, and things like that, but I, it oftentimes, I think, um, there might be like a, a big one, but I feel like they're incomplete. A lot of the ones like, Oh, they have a lot from this area, but they don't have from like in another state, they're missing a lot of folks. So, um, or it's one particular type of health provider or, um, uh, therapists or psychiatrists or, you know, whoever it might be, but, um, yeah, so I don't have like a, specific one that I recommend. I usually encourage people to get onto local because that's where you're going to like, who are the local people? Um, and then, um, there's certain ones just in terms of people are looking for a therapist that I'm aware of just in, in terms of like inclusive therapists is a, um, I think a good directory, but, but again, I think it's still growing and there's still a need in a lot of the different States for them to have more folks on there. So they're developing, I think. Mm-hmm. Do you find, especially with you having had medical care, do you find that as you see doctors who are um, who are affirming that they know of other affirming doctors to refer to? Yes, usually, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's that's part of it. Is that when you start to be practicing in a certain area, you start to then be aware of. You know, I kind of have like a, some different, like these are, these are doctors that will provide care. And I think that they're not going to do much harm. And, you know, and then I've got the folks that are like really knowledgeable um, and, you know, really affirming and, you know, great. Sometimes it's hard. It's, it's a matter of access and things like that of, of, of who you might need to go to. Um, but um, definitely, yeah, usually folks are aware of, yeah, of other, of other folks. And I think it would be great to just start to be aware of, I think part of the process is, okay, if someone wants hormones, like who are you going to refer to if somebody wants, you know, surgery, who, who are the folks that you're aware of that folks are going to be able to be referred to. And, and again, sometimes that's when you want to be a part of forums that are about providing affirming care. You know, so I'm a, I'm a part of a lot of different groups that are about providing gender affirming care so that I can be networked. So if I have, you know, a client that moves across the country that I can kind of reach out to folks and like, okay, who are folks recommending for over there? Um, because I can't be aware of everybody in the United States or beyond. Right. So, um, so that's when you rely on those networking platforms to be able to, to connect folks. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
If you're ready to elevate your level of care and professional satisfaction, register today for the trusted DPC event that can help get you where you want to go. With three physician-led tracks focusing on starting a DPC practice, growing a DPC practice, and clinical expertise within a DPC practice, the Direct Primary Care Summit has content for anyone no matter where you are in your DPC journey. The DPC Summit is happening June 20th to 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Learn more and register today at dpcsummit.org. And that said, with the pandemic, I know that physician licenses were very, um, physicians, physician licenses with regards to practicing in other states was really relaxed, especially in the early days of the pandemic. What about for a person who is an LMFT for your practice? Can you practice outside of the state of California because you're doing telehealth? No. So I think um, right now, I think the pandemic has really made it um, a good point for revamping the systems that we have for, it's just um, so many folks had to like move suddenly or, you know, and things like that. And that like the continuity of care that's lost when someone has built a relationship is really problematic. Um, Some States made it easy to get like a temporary license in some other States, but oftentimes not, or it's for a very short period of time. So it, it ended. And so you can't, um, and there are different requirements in each state and a different process. And some have some level of reciprocity. Some do not at all. Like, I mean, it's, just, it's, it's all over the place right now. And I think that there's a push to, to change that because it's, it's really the fact that you have, you know, the schooling, the training, the testing, it's like, how can we, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm a big proponent of, um, pushing for, more of an ability to get reciprocity or kind of a national like, you know, license or some type of way of being able to follow your, your clients or your patients um, when, when needed until they can at least find someone, you know, so it's that it's not just cut off um, because I think that, you know, do I know folks that sometimes do that? Like, I just like, I'm not going to do that given that like my license is for California. So, um, but it's been something that's been really problematic. People are like, Oh, well, but I'm going to be moving in a month and I need help right now. And it's like, well, unless you can find someone that's like licensed in both this state and the state that you're moving to, which is sometimes difficult. Right. So, um, yeah, I think it's, I think the pandemic has really shown some of the concerns with access to care and continuity of care and um, telehealth parity and like all of those issues that are coming up um, that will hopefully maybe, maybe improve um, now that I think more people are aware of them. That's just incredible. I, I am paralleling everything you're saying with regards to primary care in my head, as I'm sure the listeners are, because those realities are ugly and they're real. And especially when we frequently see healthcare tied to employment, Mm -hmm. it's really, you know, we talked about how people are accessing platforms that are virtual because Mm -hmm. they are affordable and they are accessible and they don't care where you live. I think that is really, it, it just allows us to think about how even as an LMFT, your practice has a lot of similarities with regards to the challenges that you face versus somebody who's in a direct primary care setting. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, like part, part of the, some of the things that I want to do is get eventually get licensed in some other states to be able to provide telehealth um, to those folks. Because again, like even within California, California is a big state and there's a lot of rural areas in California that don't have any affirming providers. And so I've had folks contact me who live far away from where I'm at because they're looking for someone that they can see that has, um, you know, my training and knowledge and, and affirming care. So, so making that possible, um, is, is something that a lot of providers have started to do. Like a lot of therapists have, um, begun to be like, Oh wait, if I do that, then I can actually provide even more care to folks that are isolated and have no access. Awesome. I want to ask, what is the best way for folks to reach out to you after this podcast? And if you can include the best way for those who are California-based and the best way for those who are not California-based, I would love that because I'm sure there's going to be questions after. And just like you talked about the network, even if Mel isn't able to see a patient, he might know of a therapist or a provider in another state who is on one of those networks that he knows about that he can refer your patient to. Yeah, absolutely. One place to go to is my website. So my website is www.melbrowningtherapy. So all together, melbrowningtherapy.com. And it's M-E-L-L-E, Browning, the color brown with I-N-G at the end of it, therapy.com is how I say it. Um, And so if you go on there, you can um, see a little bit more about me and my practice. Um, And then in terms of contacting me, so I also have an email address, which is M-E-L-L-E at M-E-L-L-E browningtherapy.com. So it's mel at melbrowningtherapy.com. So email is a great way to get a hold of me. um, And then also has my phone number on there, which you can always call. um, So yeah, folks can contact me via that. Um, I do have um, an Instagram and a Facebook, which folks can try to uh, message me through those. But I, I usually prefer email to social media sites. Thank you for sharing that. I'll include your contact information with your blog. But as a last question, in terms of those social media avenues, I know you talked about the networks and finding people who are local, but are there handles that you absolutely love for being just, you know, affirming in general or affirming when it comes to medical care that you can recommend? Yeah. I mean, I think I connect with a lot of therapists on there, but um, I I haven't connected with a lot of medical providers. Well, I'm definitely open for folks to find me and get connected to me if they provide affirming care. Oh, and I also wanted to add editing in. um, So Gender Spectrum has um, an online kind of forum that like um, folks can ask those questions of and things like that. So like families and parents and things like that. So I recommend that. Fenway Health. I kind of follow some of those things, but I I follow a lot of the big organizations that provide important services, you know, whether that's, um, you know, Trans Lifeline or local LGBTQ organizations or um, local, like for me, a lot of the folks I refer is usually to like clinics that are drop-in that provide like free services to folks that are uh, gender diverse. So oftentimes I'm, it's, it's very local to where I'm at and they have like once a month, they have a, a drop-in. So you don't have to actually even be a page, a patient of that clinic to go to. So I think knowing about all of those different resources would be important. Um, if, 
you know, for folks accessing care because you might come across folks that need, yeah, that need to be able to access certain types of care and then maybe don't have the resources. Mel, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been such a pleasure. We talk about so much, but I love that we focused in on how you practice as an affirming therapist and how we can learn as physicians to evaluate our own practices and to learn about affirming care in the future. So thank you so much and happy pride. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Next week, look forward to hearing from Dr. Elizabeth Eamon of Oodle Family Medicine in Renton, Washington. Now, after Dr. Rebecca Barron's episode, many of you had unanswered questions about virtual assistants. Join in on a free fireside chat with Dr. Barron's and her virtual assistant on June 22nd. Leave your questions you want answered at speakpipe.com slash mydpcstory, and they'll be answered during the event. Registration is open on the podcast website for this event as well. And the AAFP DPC Summit registration is open at dpcsummit.org. The conference will be held virtually from July 16th to 18th, so register today. If you like what you heard today, please leave a review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tell your friends, too. For more information on this episode and much more, please visit mydpcstory.com. Also, for the latest in DPC news, check out dpcnews.com. Until next week, this is Marielle Conception.